Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free. Did you know that according to the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, two-thirds of all our fruits and veggies eaten in the United States come from outside the country? And there are all kinds of problems with that. For one, an apple that had to travel hundreds or even thousands of miles to get to your plate can't be all that fresh or nutritious. And I say that's just crazy, especially when we can grow so many different varieties in our own front and backyards. Jumping into growing your own food is actually quite simple. You just need to know the rules. My free webinar, Introduction to Urban Farming, begins to frame out your pathway to growing your own healthy food. In this free webinar, you'll learn the three simple steps to becoming an urban farmer, the five components of healthy soil, and how to think regeneratively, which is, by the way, one of the most important concepts we need to be exploring right now. Will you join me in this webinar and help co-create the food revolution? Just text GARDEN to 44222 or go to urbanfarmu.org to sign up for your free webinar. That's GARDEN to 44222 or urbanfarmu.org. You're listening to the Urban Farm Podcast, your partner in the Grow Your Own Food revolution. Whether you've just been introduced to urban farming or you're a lifelong advocate, we're sure you'll leave feeling more informed, equipped, and empowered to dig deeper into the soil of your local food economy. With you every step of the way, here's your host, Greg Peterson. Today on the Urban Farm Podcast, we have Tristram Stewart of Feedback to talk about his experience with food waste and his book, Waste. Tristram Stewart founder of the charity Feedback, is an international award-winning author, The Bloodless Revolution and Waste, Uncovering the Global Food Scandal. He's a speaker, campaigner, and expert on the environment and social impacts of food production. The environmental campaigning organization he founded, Feedback, has spread its work into dozens of countries worldwide, working with governments, international institutions, businesses, non-government agencies, grassroots organizations, and the public to change society's attitude toward food waste. Welcome to the show today, Tristram. Thank you very much. It's so, to be here. Yay, thank you for being here. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at now? Yeah, well, the the whole food waste thing starts 
quite a long time ago when I was still a teenager. I was living on what was then almost an empty farm in Sussex in rural England. And I decided to get some pigs and chickens. And I quickly learned that the only economically viable way of rearing these animals was using food waste, which is exactly what we domesticated pigs and chickens to eat many thousands of years ago. And so I started collecting food waste from my school canteen and the local baker and a greengrocer and a farmer who was wasting potatoes because they were too big or too knobbly for the supermarkets. And that was great. I got lots of free food. I converted it into pork, or my pigs did, <laughs> and then I converted them into delicious meals and also a lot of pocket money. I sold my pork to my school friend's parents. Wow. And that was great. It was a little business that I had running. It was entirely my own. But I did quickly notice that a lot of the food that I was collecting from my pigs was perfectly fit for human consumption. And that really the solution was that we shouldn't be wasting this food in the first place. I was merely scratching the tip of an iceberg of waste that we were hemorrhaging at every level in the supply chain. I'd been to talk to supermarkets. They were locking their food in bins, sending off to landfill. They didn't want to even talk to me. That's amazing. And I... I was pretty incensed at that age. I was already a dedicated environmentalist. I knew the environmental impacts of food production were the single biggest impact that humans have on nature. We mm -hmm. chop down forests to grow more food, and it didn't make any sense that we were wasting so much of it. Right. And the bread, I remember in particular from the local baker, it was much better than the bread that my dad was buying in supermarkets. So I remember the morning when I reached into the sack of supposedly uh, stale bread, still perfectly good by my standards, and uh, and shared my breakfast with my pigs. It was a, a beautiful, <laughs> soft, delicious loaf of sun-dried tomato bread. And wow, that was my first act of what I later learned to call freeganism or dumpster diving or any number of different names. But the point for me was really an expression of outrage about the right. level and the injustice of food waste can you give me a that sense of, for me a, can you give me a sense yeah. of when that was yeah that was when i was about 16 or, or 17 years old wow. so that was uh god too many years ago 22 <laughs> years ago 22 years ago uh -huh. and i i started as a un university student to collect food from supermarket dumpsters that was, again, perfectly good, nothing wrong with it, untouched trays full of food, still within date. And the bins every day were being filled up with this perfectly good food. I started to campaign on it publicly when I left university. Mm -hmm. I, I'd actually started that first book, The Bloodless Revolution, which was a history book. But in my spare time, I <laughs> would take journalists, cameramen, TV crews round the back of supermarkets, round the back of other food businesses to show the scale and the quality of perfectly good food was being wasted. And the, the point that I was making in those days was really very simple. There were charities that are set up to collect this kind of food that feed hungry people. And it made absolutely no sense that businesses up and down the country and around the world were chucking away food at the end of every single day mm -hmm. that should be being eaten by people. At the very least, if people can't sell it, 
you know, donated to charity. And that was really a rhetorical platform on which to say, look, there's a global scandal and it's something that we can do something about and put this food to good use. That really grew into a grassroots campaigning platform that started to involve individuals and media kind of outlets across Europe principally. Uh When I finished my first book, I immediately set to work on the second book, which was the the book you mentioned, Waste Uncovering the Global Food Scandal. I, I decided to make that a global book. It was a survey of food waste around the world. I did a lot of number crunching and came up with the estimate that at least a third of the world's food was being wasted. That figure has since been endorsed by the United Nations Food and Agricultural Organization, by the European Union, by numerous international institutions. And indeed, last year, after years and years of work on this, we've uh, reached the point where the United Nations uh, has set a global goal of halving food waste by 2030. That's now been ratified by the United States government with the most ambitious food waste reduction target in the world. And the landscape has changed dramatically since I started uh, campaigning on on this issue. You know, back then, there was really nothing, nothing in the press, nothing from corporations, nothing from government Mm -hmm. addressing this global problem. And now, wherever you look, NGOs, corporations, governments, international institutions, they are all on board, saying really much, pretty much the same thing, which is that, you know, it is a a global scandal. It's a tragedy that we have a billion hungry people and all of these environmental impacts, and yet we waste a third of the world's food supply. Yeah. But this is a tragedy with particularly delicious solutions. We really <laughs> can convert all of this food into perfectly nutritious meals uh-huh. to relieve our impact on the environment and help feeding hungry people. So I, I actually want to talk about your book, but we're going to get to that in a minute. What have you done in your charity feedback to address this? it's pretty epic yeah so i wrote the book i laid out a number of policies that we needed to adopt at the individual level at corporate level government level, etc and having written the book and it did kickstart a big debate particularly at the high level i wanted to take that message to a much wider audience than the audience that were actually going to read my book or indeed read the media coverage and really to bring the story alive for people in a tangible way. And what better way to do that than to organize a gigantic feast (laughs) for 5,000 people, which um, I had absolutely no idea how to do, but I set about doing it. And really, the moment I put that vision out there, individuals, other NGOs, the local government here in London, just bought into it. And before I knew it, we had a date booked for Trafalgar Square in the center of London uh, in the middle of December, Uh where I was supposedly going to feed 5,000 people with food that otherwise would have been wasted. We didn't have a catering plan. Uh, (laughs) We didn't know where the food was going to come from. We certainly didn't know if anyone was going to come to this feast. But on that day, it was snowing. We'd got an enormous curry together tons something like 13 tons of produce that we were both giving to charities giving away to the public and had kind of converted into all these delicious hot meals that uh-huh. we were giving away for free and i remember at around 12 30 i looked over the balcony at trafalgar square and there was an enormous queue of people around trafalgar square queuing in the snow and that was the moment that i 
realized that this was a way of bringing the message in a very edible way to people that, you know, when I heard people talking and saying, yeah, God, wow, this food is delicious. Why would anyone waste it? Yeah. That was the point. I didn't need to stand on a soapbox. People didn't need to read my book. They were witnessing the message through this meal. And we'd invited all of the NGOs involved in this space or that we had managed to persuade to get involved in food waste in the process of putting on this event. And they got a huge boost in their, their profile. And then the thing that was really not anticipated with the amount of media coverage we got, and it really was saturation, the supermarkets immediately responded with a raft of new policies that they were going to introduce wow. to tackle food. The government, I remember the Minister for uh -huh. Food and Agriculture, he wrote to all the CEOs of the supermarkets, having never been anywhere near supermarket food waste policies, they suddenly sent a letter to them all saying, we want you to donate your food instead of destroying it. And all these changes started to tick into place. The, the ugly fruit and vegetable campaign that we had run oh, yes. off the back of the event. Yeah, I saw Nothing that. had happened on that. And now it's a global phenomenon. And all of these <laughs> markets are kind of vying with each other to get the ugliest produce on their shelves. And that really all started um, there. And the event that I'd envisaged as a one-off um, had such a big impact. The team of volunteers that I'd brought together just turned around and said, Tristram, we're not going to stop there. And sure enough, we started to be invited by organizations around the world to use use Feeding the 5,000 as a platform to bring together a coalition of organizations and to galvanize, amplify public outcry on this issue and bring that message, that pressure onto companies to say, look, wasting a world's food supply is no longer an option. We are going to do our bit in terms of reducing food waste in our homes. And sure enough, there's been a 21% reduction in the United Kingdom in household food waste. And we expect the same from you businesses that we're giving money to every day and that is and has been an incredibly powerful way of creating and galvanizing energy and building the movement that is now global everywhere we go we have friends partner organizations people willing to pick up the baton on the food waste movement and you know we've got a long way to go of course but when i look back to those early days and it's been a transformation in attitudes and that's really what we were aiming at yeah so i want to ask you because as you were sharing about that i was actually moved you know it, it moved me the impact of what you did how did it make you feel to be one person that started this conversation and made that kind of an impact how'd that feel well the previous book i'd written was a history book uh -huh. and it was a history book of individuals who were trying to change the food system from the 16th century onwards. That was principally about meat consumption, but the issue was the same. And what I've observed is that the, the campaigners or writers who achieved their objective, they didn't try to own it. They didn't try to mm -hmm. control it. Mm -hmm. They made a strong argument and an argument that was perfectly tailored for existing values within their culture. And that's really what I learned in writing that book is it's, it, for me, it wasn't then about organize, setting up an organization. I was really reluctant to set up an organization. We only <laughs> uh -huh. got around to doing that in 2013, only a few years ago. 
Um, and that has been an, an incredible transformation. But originally, it was just about getting the arguments out there, getting other organizations, getting whatever entity, individuals, companies, governments, to take on board the core argument. And it, wasting out of the world's food supply makes no sense. And we can turn these problems into mutually beneficial win-win solutions. And just getting that argument there has, I think, been the most powerful contribution I've made. An individual cannot change the world by themselves, but an idea can. And this idea sure did. So tell me about your book, because there's a lot of empirical data in here that this looks like a work of academic. Are you an academic writing this from that perspective or... I'm not an academic in that, although I do have an affiliation to a university, that's not my day job. I always wanted to write books, and I wanted to use my writing at the service of really transforming my society, the societies in which we operate, so as to align what is currently an immensely destructive system mm -hmm. uh, into one that need not be destructive, and indeed can be regenerative, one that grows food to feed people whilst leaving space and indeed encouraging and replenishing uh, natural resources and, and wildlife. Mm -hmm. And that was my vision. You know, I'd grown up on, with stories of my dad's life on a, on a farm before the war when, you know, things were done in a way that did not kind of completely annihilate bird life and insect life and, you know, pollinators and flowers and the rest of it and 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 that that was really the vision for agriculture that i i grew up on is you know we can feed people without destroying nature and you know my pigs were my entry point into that they were turning waste mm -hmm. which had previously been a cost to the businesses that were producing it because they had to get rid of it to landfill and they were turning that waste into into food into product and making you know, money, a small business for, for me and, and, and doing no harm uh, to the environment and quite, quite the opposite, doing actually a, a positive service to the environment. That's not going to work in every example, but if we take as a, as a basic premise of our food system that we, we have to feed people, but also we have to leave Mother Earth, nature in a situation where it can continue to operate and provide for the human population and also all those other species that share this planet with us, not just now, not just on the basis of what our yield is per year, but what is our yield going to be in a thousand years, in 10,000 years? Mm -hmm. That's the kind of equation we need to be looking at. And, uh, and you know, if we don't, the future is, is not bright. <laughs> we are still continuing to destroy forests landscapes yeah. and, and, and wildlife in the name of food production. And it need not be so. And it's not going to change unless we citizens and consumers demand that the food system that we pay to bring us our food aligns with what I believe everyone already holds, which is that being a billion hungry people and wasting a third of the world's food supply while destroying the environment is just totally unacceptable. Yeah. 
Wow. So you mentioned a word called regenerative, and I kind of want to unpack that word a little bit for our listeners that don't really have a sense of what it means. And you kind of alluded to it over the last couple of minutes, but I really want to focus in on that. Can you talk about the word regenerative? Yeah. You know, wherever you look at really well-run food production systems, they're putting something back and not just extracting. And unfortunately, the food system that has dominated in the world now is an extractive system. It's it's essentially a mining company. Mm-hmm. We take from the soil. We take from the water table, drilling deeper and deeper into our water tables. We take further land from the world's remain forests and grasslands. Mm-hmm. We're constantly taking and taking and taking. Food systems can be the exact reverse. You can put more nourishment back into the soil through the application of composts, manures, and that is not just good for soil. It's not just good for harvests. It's not just good for the longevity of our of our farm, farmland. It's also doing an additional service. It's putting carbon into soils, which means mm. that we're taking it out of the atmosphere. Right. And so whilst at the moment the food production system is, I repeat, the single biggest impact we've had on nature, uh-huh. the single biggest source of species extinction, the single biggest use of fresh water, the single biggest contributor to climate change, mm-hmm. at the moment it's all of those things. But if we managed it better, if we used our land to its full potential, it could become the single biggest remedial source of our impact on wildlife and indeed on climate change and hydrological cycles and all the rest of it. Mm-hmm. And it's it's by no means impossible to do that. And there are so many great examples. And you know, just in my own life, I've I've mentioned my keeping of pigs. Now, that was a small cottage industry, but there are industrial scale pig production units there's a great big farm rc farms on the outside of las vegas turning the horrendous waste Uh from the strip back into food and into money and into nourishment and into manure that goes into the soil and all of those things a regenerative farming system is one that puts back as much as it takes and ideally more because at the moment the food production system is the biggest impact we have on nature we're extracting constantly but it could, in my view, become one of the biggest tools we have for remedying global environmental challenges, including climate change, by putting carbon back into soils, mm-hmm. leaving space for wildlife, and really allowing our farmland to become a place where food is produced and the other species that share this planet with us yeah. have a role to play that, that helps us and obviously helps them. They're essentially taken care of. Yeah. I mean, at the moment, we have a system geared towards eliminating everything else that lives on this planet. Yeah. And we're swiftly realizing that this isn't serving anyone's interests in the long term. Right. I have have bees in my garden. And it's, again, a small scale thing. But those bees, they're producing honey, which I use. Uh They're providing a service to all of the the fruit trees in the area. And I live in a part of London that is an, an old part of a market garden. There are fruit trees everywhere and wow. the abundance of fruit that is produced. Uh-huh. And, you know, in, in particularly in my neck of the woods, cause I have so many bees, 
even in a really bad year when the, the spring rains have come at the wrong time and blossom hasn't been pollinated in the rest of the country, mm-hmm. we have heaving harvests of food. Now, that is that's symbiosis at work. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, that's amazing. So, so I'm going to ask a question that maybe doesn't need to be asked, but I'm going to ask it anyways. And that is, why is food waste such a big problem? Humans have evolved in an environment where scarcity was the norm. All that has changed in just a few decades. Uh Over the last hundred years, our food production system has ramped up production to an unrecognizable degree. And now in all countries in Western Europe and North America, we have between one and a half and two times the amount of food available in our shops and restaurants than we actually need. Now that surplus is a sign of the success of human Mm -hmm. agriculture. Creating Uh surplus has been our objective of us as a species since agriculture was invented mere 10 to 12,000 years ago. And by God, have we succeeded. The result is that we are not well adapted to use that surplus in sensible ways. We Mm -hmm. take more than we need, we overfeed ourselves, and we fill our trash cans with the remainder. And at the same time, that creation of surplus has created its own problems, those ecological limits that the planet itself is up against. Mm -hmm. And what we have to do now is really rewire our system and rewire ourselves to say, look, actually taking more and more and more, even if we can financially afford it in relatively affluent families in relatively affluent parts of the world, the planet we live on cannot afford it. And uh, and creating all of this surplus only to dump it in bins is the first thing we need to do if we're going to put our food system to rights. Mm -hmm. So it's a sign of, of, of of a broken system, of a system that has gone over the top, but which at the same time represents a huge opportunity if what we need to do is feed hungry people and reduce our impact on the environment. This is is such a low-hanging fruit. So as an end user from the farm system, uh, that would be, you know, me and the people we're talking to today, um, what can we do about that? Well, it's obvious that this kind of thing can start in our own kitchen. And if it's just reaching for that banana that's beginning to go black and turning it into a smoothie or sticking it in the freezer for an ice cream later in the summer. Mm-hmm. That's a that's a perfectly great, empowering and delicious entry point for anyone. We've all experienced that kind of going to the bottom of the fridge and finding that kind of last packet of salad that, that went past its date and just being mindful about the the responsibility we have uh-huh. for the food that we have in our possession, these foodstuffs that we day after day fill our trash cans with, they're, a, they're an opportunity we have to contribute to solving some of these local and global problems that we all know about and making sure that we eat everything we buy and moreover that we only buy in the shops what we actually need. Uh-huh. That is, a, that is an entry point for everyone. And I argue that we have the responsibility to do that. But I also think our power goes further. Uh-huh. Time and time again, Feedback, the organization I represent, is in the business of bringing public outcry to bear on the food industry. And I think we all have the power and therefore the responsibility to demand change from the food industry. We're giving them our money 
I don't believe there's a single person on earth who thinks that the current system where a waste of a third of the world's food supply is acceptable. And we have the power to demand that change from those businesses. Mm. It might be that it's just a question of buying at a store that you know has better policies, like it donates its surplus to charities, or you can see that in you know the local market they have a whole range of ugly fruit and vegetables instead of just the uniform perfect ones that uh -huh. you find in regular supermarkets. It, it might be that, or you might actually take it a step further and go to the manager or the customer service desk and mm -hmm. say, look, you know, what are your policies on these issues? Do you donate your surplus? Where are all the ugly fruit and vegetables? That kind of thing. Yeah. Or you might take it another step further and actually get involved in the many, many organizations that have been at work on this issue for many decades, whether it's a food recovery organization, whether it's a gleaning program, whether it's an environmental organization like my own feedback, you, mm -hmm. you might want to sign the petition, add your voice, keep in touch with what's going on. Or you might want to start creating your own community initiative, organize an event, recover some food, get some people to come along and eat it, have a discussion about what needs to happen locally prioritize and target those areas where you can be a force for change. And I'll tell you, I mean, this industry is a boom industry. There are thousands of jobs in food waste reduction now globally. So it might start with a smoothie in your kitchen. It could become an entire career path as it has for many, many entrepreneurs, environmental activists, doesn't matter where you are in 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 you know, in terms of industry, right. you're a food producer or a food consumer. There's something for you in this movement. Wow. Well said. Thank you. So can you talk about a time you failed and how you overcame that failure, what you might have learned from it? I'm a bit wary of talking openly about this, but I would say that it is from this vantage point, point of what many would rightly define as success you uh -huh. know we we kicked off a global movement we have friends now in literally every part of the world uh -huh. we've worked in all of the continents on planet earth and we have partner organizations and enthusiastic individuals who are part of this movement we have as i said the buy-in of governments, international institutions, companies, innumerable other NGOs with aligned interests. And I look at this and I think, wow, how did that happen? That's amazing. And then I think about the real challenge that we have, human civilization has. Mm -hmm. In terms of our environmental impact, it's not just that we're still going in the wrong direction we're still accelerating in the wrong direction we're still clearing more forests mm -hmm. climate change is still rapidly becoming a, a worse and worse problem water resources are running out look at what california is in and yeah. in, in terms of its its water use and mm -hmm. these problems are critical and you know just on the issue of food waste, 21% of that water in the US, fresh water, is being used to grow food that no one eats. Wow. It's just being trashed. Right. And you think about the mismatch between what feels like success on the one hand and how much closer are we really to tackling the fundamental problem that we're facing? And it 
it feels like that success is almost a failure itself because you know when I, I look at the probabilities of us managing to confront and reverse what are very very bleak trends globally uh-huh. it feels like we have only a very small chance of achieving what we actually need to achieve and I I confront that pessimistic view by saying, look, it is precisely the fact that we have a small chance of averting the mass species extinction event that we are currently eating our way through uh-huh. right now, today. It's not a future scenario. It's happening right now that we are exterminating the vast majority of species that exist on this planet. And that's a tragic loss. It is the very fact that we have a small chance of averting that disaster mm-hmm. that makes me think that is why we have to put all of our energy into, this. into averting it. Yeah. If we had a 99% chance of success, most <laughs> of us could sit back and relax and let the Tristram Stewarts of this world sort out the problem. If we had a 50% chance, mm-hmm. maybe more of us need to sit up and take notice. But if we have a 1% chance, we all have to take every measure from our kitchens to the grocery stores to our elected governments, everywhere we look, we have to put pressure on reversing what is a currently very, very critical trend uh, with our global food system. Yeah. Wow. Well said. So on the other side of that question, what do you consider your biggest success? You know, I really like bite-sized successes. Uh-huh. I like... I like hmm symbolic wins wins that i think indicate and give a powerful message that we can change the system one piece at a time Uh and symbolically in a transformational way and just a few weeks ago we had a nice reminder of that um we've campaigned as you know for many years on the issue of ugly fruit and vegetables and saying, look, come on, it's totally ridiculous that a farmer who has grown good produce should be unable to sell a third of it, 20, 40%, whatever it is, because it doesn't look perfect and the retailers only want straight carrots or perfectly curved bananas or whatever it is. And we went to Africa um, a few years ago and found farmers there growing produce for European supermarkets, in particular Uh green beans and fresh peas and that kind of thing. And they were suffering the same thing. Half of the food that many of these farmers are growing mm-hmm. was being wasted because it didn't look right. Oh, wow. But the very pinnacle of the absurdity of this system is when they had sorted out just the most perfect green beans, the straight, green, absolutely visually perfect beans, they were then trimming both ends off these beans oh, to get gosh. them into nine centimeter punnets. And to trim them, to get them into nine... I mean, the beans didn't know they had to be nine centimeters long. So they were growing all sorts of different lengths, would right. you believe it? And they were wasting 15 to 20% of the beans, the perfect beans, just in that last process of trimming. Wow. And we said, look, this is, this is a symbolic absurdity that represents the entire system. And mm-hmm. we went to town on that particular issue. We confronted the supermarkets here. We took videos... Uh, uh, and produce campaign materials about what we had witnessed in Africa. We galvanized a coalition of farmers in, in Kenya to kind of write letters to representatives here in, in Europe and did these Feeding the 5,000 events, incorporating some of these reject beans into our recipe and really going strong on this message. Uh-huh. Um, within months, we got you know the, the, one of the world's biggest retailers and the UK's biggest, Tesco, to announce that it was only going to trim 
the top of the beans from now on rather than both sides. That by itself cut waste by 30% on the part of the farmers. Uh And I I calculated then that just that measure, if you did it across all of the green beans coming from Kenya to Europe, would represent 0.04% of the entire Kenyan economy. Oh my gosh value of green beans which uh-huh. translates into an awful lot but just a few weeks ago we got an announcement and it's now the industry norm to stop trimming those beans at all and guess <laughs> what not only does it cut waste it also extends the shelf life of the bean because you haven't cut it of course and uh, you know that to me represents the power that we have to call for changes yeah. to demand the absurdities that are blindly being done in our name are not really in our name, and, and it's up to us to, to demand to that them. change to take place. Wow. That's epic. That's epic. And and this brings me to my next question. I love this next question, and I'm, I'm particularly loving it as I ask you, and that's what drives you. What's your big why? I am an environmentalist. I care deeply about the natural world. I think that forests and ecosystems have a value in and of themselves. They're the product of four billion years of evolution, of which we are also a product. Mm -hmm. It's in our interests, as well as the inherent value of those ecosystems, to prevent the annihilation of nature on Earth. And I believe that it will be good for human society both in the short and the long term Mm -hmm. to put in place global measures to prevent the extension of the agricultural frontier into the world's remaining forests to preserve nature and natural resources for our own good and for the sake of the biosphere and that is what I'm all about and I believe it's possible for human civilization to wake up Mm -hmm. to the urgency of this need and that slim possibility of bringing about society-wide changes, changes in attitude and behavior, is what drives me. Wow. Wow. So I'm all about education. And I'd like to know, is there one book that has been influential for you in this journey? Yeah. Uh, Jared Diamond is my number one favorite author author mm-hmm. he's of course not too far away from where you are he's at the ucla yep and his books uh all of them actually have been massively influential yeah. in the way in which i see our work fitting into that job of transformational change of our civilization and the need for it he paints a very compelling uh picture and a narrative of why we have got to where we've got to. Mm-hmm. And very importantly, he demonstrates and charts how civilizations in the past have either failed or succeeded in bringing about those fundamental changes. And the parable and its applicability to mm-hmm. our present situation is obvious. If we fail to do this, it will be our own undoing. If we succeed, we can uh, you know, change the way we're doing food so as to preserve our own civilization and the natural environment. And his book, Collapse in particular, charts that over over many, many examples through yeah. history. Yeah, it's an excellent book. So what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? 
I think it's to wake up and realize the power that we have as consumers, as mm. citizens. We are responsible for the fabric of the society we live in. Mm -hmm. And those businesses that we're usually in the habit of blaming and thinking that they're beyond our power are in fact directly within our power. They operate solely because of the money that they get from our pockets. Yeah. And we can change that. We can change it through legislation. We can change it through our own behavior of consumption. And we can change it by making public and powerful demands for change. And we've got to do that. Yeah. Tristram, I want to step back to our prior conversation because I realized I left something out. And that's the connection between urban agriculture and urban farming and animals. Can you make a connection there and say something about that? Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm a profound believer in the role of urban farming. I think it's fantastic. I myself, when I moved to London five years ago, set up a, a community growing plot, got the local kids involved, and it, it's got a huge educational value, getting kids growing vegetables uh -huh. uh, and connecting them thereby to the value of food. But realistically, for most of these kids, the input in terms of their nutritional from these urban growing plots is always going to be absolutely minuscule. Mm. And that's because land is at a premium in an yeah. urban area yeah. and you need land to grow vegetables. So I think it has an enormous educational value and a pretty insignificant nutritional value. Where that equation changes is where you introduce pigs and chickens. Mm. Why? Because these are the species that were designed to use waste food. Where do you find large concentrations of waste food? In cities. Urban and peri-urban production of pork, eggs, and chicken using waste residues from our food system is something that is both time-honored and currently almost completely obliterated. Oh, yes. And course. yet that's where it makes sense. A pig farm on the outskirts of a city with twin partner farms on the inside of cities so people can see it, is, I think, a really viable way, not just of connecting people to the food system, but actually making quantities of food. And we, you know, we demonstrated it when we launched the Pig Idea campaign, which is all about saying, look, <laughs> if you can't reduce your food waste, if there is food waste left over, the next best thing to do with it is to feed pigs and chickens. Mm -hmm. And we reared a small herd of pigs right in the middle of London, in East London here in Stepney. And we did an event, which is our normal way of communicating. We fed 5,000 people with the pork produced on the waste from within one kilometer of the city farm wow. that had previously been buying food uh -huh. from an agricultural feed system that is also responsible for chopping down the Amazon rainforest oh, and growing yeah. soy there and all the rest of it, uh -huh. and actually making pork from waste just in our local area, we were able to produce a vast quantity of really good, totally environmentally beneficial, delicious and revenue generating pork. And that, I feel like urban farming is missing a trick at the moment uh -huh. by, by not involving livestock and using food waste as its input because that's the abundant resource where urban farming is is concerned yeah so plugging in the chickens and the pigs to our urban systems i know that here at the urban farm we have 
19 hens out back that get a lot of our food scraps and they right. produce wonderful eggs every day. And think about exactly that multiplied by the vast tonnages of food waste coming out of the commercial system. Yeah. That would be a lot of chickens and a lot of eggs and it's a beautiful <laughs> thing. So where is your urban farm exactly? The urban farm is in Phoenix, Arizona, uh, right in the middle of Phoenix. And so if you actually stand on the roof of the urban farm and look, you know, basically in all directions, there's houses in 50, 50 miles in all directions. So uh, there's 4.4 million people in the Phoenix metropolitan area. And one of my goals is 10,000 urban farms in Phoenix. To that is so cool. Thank you. Greg, uh, listen, this, this can, we can loop back. Maybe you can send me an email if you have any thoughts, but it's quite probable that we'll be looking for a partner, urban farm, who would be willing to do what we did in London and use food waste in this way to rear pigs in an, in an urban farm context wow. and do a big event and feed thousands of people on waste-fed pork. If somebody comes to mind that you think would be up for doing this in the US, uh -huh. we'd really like to hear, hear about it. Fantastic. Well, I just we just recorded it, so all of our listeners for sure, and I'm more than happy to talk about Phoenix as well. Cool. So... Fantastic. Well, this has been an incredible talk. Thank you so much for joining us on the show and sharing your experience with us today, Tristram. Thank you, Greg. Absolutely. Good to talk to you. So how can our listeners get a hold of you? The website feedbackglobal.org is a great place to find out more about the work we're doing. In particular, we're very active in the USA this year. We just did Feeding the 5,000 events in New York and in Washington, D.C. Oh, wow. this month. Uh -huh. And we are looking for partners, volunteers, people who just want to sign the pledge, hear about what we're doing, join your voice, go on to feedbackglobal.org, find out what we're doing, and, uh, and join the movement. Perfect. Thank you. That's it for today. Thanks for joining us on the Urban Farm Podcast. Thank you, Greg. Did you know that according to the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, two-thirds of all our fruits and veggies eaten in the United States come from outside the country? And there are all kinds of problems with that. For one, an apple that had to travel hundreds or even thousands of miles to get to your plate can't be all that fresh or nutritious. And I say that's just crazy, especially when we can grow so many different varieties in our own front and backyards. Jumping into growing your own food is actually quite simple. You just need to know the rules. My free webinar, Introduction to Urban Farming, begins to frame out your pathway to growing your own healthy food. In this free webinar, you'll learn the three simple steps to becoming an urban farmer, the five components of healthy soil, and how to think regeneratively, which is, by the way, one of the most important concepts we need to be exploring right now. Will you join me in this webinar and help co-create the food revolution? Just text GARDEN to 44222 or go to urbanfarmu.org to sign up for your free webinar. That's GARDEN to 44222 or urbanfarmu.org. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen three days a week for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. 
Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free.